I think people now are identifying with brands that have fulfilled on their promise. No longer is it just like we see the brand and that looks amazing. And so we're going to go after it. Hello and welcome to the Design Rush podcast, where we dive into the world of creativity, innovation, and design. I'm your host, Bianca Mayer, and today we have the privilege of hosting Christine Pizzo, the head of design and creative at Design It Americas. We'll explore Christine's journey from her early beginnings to leading one of the most forward-thinking design firms in the industry. Join us as we uncover the stories, inspirations, and insights from a leader who's shaping the future of design. And to keep up with all of our future episodes, don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. Let's get into it. Um, okay, so Christine, I'd like to start from the beginning of your journey, you know, like your early life and, you know, any formative experiences that set you on the path to becoming, you know, an inf influential design leader uh, that you are today. So Christine, could you share some insights into your early life? You know, were there any pivotal moments or interests that hinted at your future in the world of design? Yeah, you know, I kind of always joke that maybe it was my mom at birthday parties would have us make these individual cakes and decorate them, you know, and it was such a thing, I think, for 90s kids. Um, or we were always doing crafts and what have you. But I actually think there were a few distinct moments in terms of where I really started to see my curiosity shift and, and specifically around like different people and cultures. My grandmother, um, I would go see her for about a month every summer and she worked in D.C., And I remember going to the National Geographic Museum and the Inca girl was there. This is an exhibit that is pretty rare to come to the U.S. at the time. And it was this girl that was frozen in ice uh, over 400 years old. And she still had her hair and her teeth and her clothing. And I was so unbelievably fascinated. And, you know, for as many times I watched National or um, Jurassic Park, I'm obviously not an archaeologist, but uh, it really made me consider different perspectives, different ways of life. And I had such an innate curiosity around like, how, how are those societies formed and how do they function? And even how are they designed, right? And it really led me into a space that because my parents were also in the military, so I was moving around a lot where I was constantly paying attention to the world around me and how it shifted. And I really had to be, I think, very adaptable So I talk a lot about, too, how I think I sit in an agency world because I need that constant like change and shift and different perspectives of, of people and the way they operate. Um, and so it's just like moments like that that I think really push me into a space where I can kind of innovate around people and what they need. Um, but obviously very, very different from how I grew up in a way. Yeah. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is, I think, one of the most interesting stories I've heard of someone saying like that was one of the things that set them onto design. I mean, it's it's actually an incredible connection that you made there as well. Um, yeah, it's it's beautiful hearing those backstories about people and how they get into the things that they do and where they find their inspiration. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Christine, on that note, actually, were there any other, you know, mentors or significant influences in your early career? You know, I know you talked about your grandmother and doing like crafts and stuff, but, you know, who was it? Were there some distinct people in your life early on in your career that really helped you to get you where you are today? Yeah, you know, I have said for quite a while, I'm really fortunate in that I have worked around some amazing women um, as leaders that I think have 
really changed what I thought I was capable of in, you know, I think even one of my internships in school, so this is what, 15 plus years ago, we still exchange Christmas cards. <laughs> um, so there were always these women that, you know, even my grad school um, became the director of that grad school and have helped me recognize and and obviously this is a little bit of the privilege I walk in as well but have the ability to I think step into a space that is not always meant for women um, and I or meant to be something that was naturally a space I was a part of I've kind of always pushed the boundaries a little bit or looked at the boxes that were supposed to fit in and say like is there a little crack that I can kind of get into and see if it's interesting for me um, and, and this has kind of been on my personal and professional life. You know, these mentors, I think, have put me into a space mm. where I have really tested my skills and thought a lot about what I want to do and kind of fell into spaces I, I didn't initially expect to be in. You know, digital and apps and things like that didn't exist when I was in school. And so I, I think I've found design along the way. Um, and that's made it more rewarding for that instead of always having such a clear vision because it's helped me had to stretch outside of what I was expecting to be doing to go test into something new. Um, and, you know, these women were constantly still connecting my previous boss, my current boss. They're all um, they fit into your life in a different way in that they are willing to talk about personal things as well. They are willing to deal with the emotional challenges of being leaders. And I think that helps me continue to feel stable and also um, feel like we're kind of in this together a bit and able to kind of walk alongside each other in, in the really difficult moments. And that has really helped shape my ability to be comfortable as I'm getting into next each rung in my career, each next new challenge, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, look, even for, I can relate to that because I've also worked with a lot of like incredible women. Um, and I definitely wouldn't be where I am without their guidance as well. And learning so many different things, you know, different ways of working with people and different ways of dealing with certain situations is just, uh, yeah, it's been invaluable to be honest. Um, but again, you know, reflecting on your youth and just taking that a step further. I mean, were there specific experiences or interests that, you know, now in hindsight, you know, clearly pointed you to where you or towards where you are today? Yeah, if I call, follow that same theme a little bit of like stepping into different spaces, um, you know, moving around a lot, We I was always in different schools with different programs. I was doing sports that no longer existed at this new place, right? I um, would go into different Girl Scout groups and they're, they're always like we were camping or doing something really interesting. Um, again, it's that like ability to adapt and have to be really curious and willing to change um, maybe little essences of myself or, or the things I was starting to form as a skill set and really have to pick up something new and be comfortable with that. And kind of how I was talking about breaking into spaces I didn't expect to be in, right? Now I've moved into a space with my own hobbies and interests as an adult that, you know, I, I'm riding motorcycles. I um, have built communities in the motorcycle space. I, with my fiance, we live in on an airport here and um, kind of the wilds of New Hampshire. And so we're flying all the time. We're going snowmobiling. And so I, I keep 
moving and being willing to to be curious and be comfortable kind of pushing myself and standing on my own two feet and that's really been replicated for me in my work world um you know i've stepped into roles much earlier than anticipated my first kind of true managerial position as a director i went from 0 to 14 which is kind of a large design team especially to start out right and i think i have this ability to identify and then fill the gaps and that's kind of what keeps pushing me forward and I also on the same token talk a lot about growing pains in that um because it is not easy that is very challenging I think to be constantly shifting yourself or going into a next rung earlier than you anticipated or feeling like the younger kid at the big like adult table you know and you have to kind of adapt and grow into those spaces to feel really confident in those areas but all of those kind of moments throughout my life I think got me really comfortable with doing that in my professional space as well A hundred percent. So, I mean, Christine, what was, you talk about growing pains and, and, you know, going from like a smaller team to a larger one quite quickly. What would you say were like three of the most significant things you learned how to like pivot that and, and, you know, just roll with the punches yeah. if, if I can say it that yeah. way. Um, I think a, the biggest one, as I lately started mentioning was really understanding my own emotional space and presence around my coworkers because when you start to move into leadership right every single thing you say and you do can really be perceived and have an effect on someone else's growth or their view of the company right or um you're inspiring them or not right? you know so i think really recognizing how I enter into a moment and actually one of my younger designers talked to me a lot about the power each of us have in different ways of your socioeconomic standard standing your um ethnicity like all of these things we have these moments of power and if we recognize those and we help others also have their own power in those moments and be more inclusive to allow the different variants to have a seat at the table or speak or whatever the thing is right and so that to me was a very defining moment of recognizing um the the cause and effect of how i step into space and how a title may or may not change perception whether or not i'm coming in feeling completely um incapable in that moment others have a preconceived notion um and then pay more attention to how you are in that moment so it was a big one uh i distinctly remember as well when i first got that um bigger director role it was about 8 months or so and i was talking to my boss at the time and he's phenomenal and i was saying you know i think i understand what to do i don't know if i'm doing it right but i like i get all the parts now at least um so i don't feel like i'm drowning and he goes well that's awesome because now we're getting acquired and i had never went through an acquisition and so then it was this whole other whirlwind that made me a little bit more dynamic and recognizing this push and pull of a new company and who we wanted to be and what we needed to um you know we talked a lot about like protect the things we cared the most about and i really had to become a bridge and understand what you had to compromise with an acquisition um and what you need to stand your ground in and so that was another really defining moment um and i would say a third one is i had this conversation maybe 2 3 years ago where we have this phenomenal internship program or apprenticeship 
kind of whatever you'd like to call it, where it was kind of a boot camp to hire 12 weeks and they were learning every facet of the business. And what we would do is I, I would be coaching in there, like give them um, design problems, client problems. And we were talking about the fact that you know, when you get to a space where you're not as hands-on and you're in more of a leadership role, it's the difference of whether you have the ability to teach them if you're not actively growing your skill and your craft. And so being really mindful that I needed to keep myself in a space of always learning and always being participatory in the craft as well. Um, because I, I remember bosses that would give me feedback on, on my work and what have you. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I really believe you you understand what we're doing or why anymore and so i've tried to always really be mindful of that for myself um picking three was hard but so hopefully that gives uh, a, a brief window yeah no exactly i mean look that's there's a lot that goes into that i think you know at the end of the day um you have so many things that that you've done i mean even like with the acquisition that you went through i'm pretty sure that must have been like quite a shock for you as well to kind of go through that and and having to like deal with the ups and downs of all of that um and i did want to ask you about that actually and ask you know say what was it that was you know the most challenging thing for you to deal with in that time yeah. would you say so um getting acquired uh, you know, so many people have gone through this, right? And I, I think we were lucky in that we had a really good match of kind of the quote unquote parent company. Um, but it did drastically change the company we inherently built. You know, when I started, there were only 60 people. We got acquired at roughly 150 into an almost 800,000 person company. Like the, the gulf in between that, we talked a lot about this. I've always phrased it like the tugboat turning the Titanic. Right. There were reasons that we were we were bought and we were brought in to kind of help shape the next wave of the evolution. And so we were always trying to make sure that those core elements were not lost as we needed to grow and update our own um, operations and infrastructure and how our people manage their career and their skill sets right to align with the new company. Um, and. I think the the unique challenge there for me was not only leading through something like that and and learning all of that, but also, you know, inevitably leaders leave through acquisitions. And I had learned at that time this phrase, the glass cliff, where I was I stepped into the role to kind of support a lot of the leaders leaving. Um, I think we went from 15 to about four of us left. And so we all were filling so many spaces and when you do that, what tends to happen is, or at least for me, what happened was I stepped into leading what was pretty much the headquarters from our acquisition right about, I think it was like three months before I had to close the studio that I was finally leading, which was like the most exciting moment for me because of COVID. And so then not only was I leading through acquisition transition, but a pandemic that was the most emotionally challenging thing I've ever had to do as a leader more so because you felt like you had everyone on your shoulders. And then we had continual acquisition attrition because I think just where we sat in the business, we were going through like 25 months of consecutive uh, hiring freeze. So we are losing people without the ability to backfill. And that's how you keep the energy there, right? And you keep a resurgence of skill sets and 
positivity and then, you know, the great resignation. So it's just like all of these things kind of continually stacked on each other. Um, and while it kind of like put me in the fire and, and forged me as well, I think at the same time I was constantly skating um, burnout and the emotional weight of what it took to be a leader in a time like that. And I know, I know I'm not singular in that space, but um, it was just kind of the compounding effect of every one of those. And, and I was still moving up as that happened and was getting continually new responsibilities on a national and global scale that, um, again, challenged me in the best way possible and the, the hardest way possible as well. So kind of big Pandora's box there, I think, for that question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think the, the pandemic definitely did a lot to change the way we work yeah. in today's life. And I, I can't imagine what that must have been like as well for a leader to have to go through that because I, I personally wasn't in a position like that. But yeah, having people like on your shoulders, as you say, and having to like sort of carry it through all of that. I mean, actually, also just speaking about the pandemic, were there like three things that you learned during that time, you know, that really solidified you know what it means to be a leader in a time of crisis yeah i i think you know you have to recognize that people's personal lives are going to affect work as much as we don't want it to from a business perspective right because you want people to be really similar and work efficiently and all those things um we are we are not we are all unique and distinct and if you own that and understand it and actually use the benefits of that, but also be really conscious of what's going on personally will truthfully impact the work. And I, I think it's not only just the pandemic, right? Any life situation someone has going on, sometimes even positive, right? Um, can really shift how they are operating and you need to really be able to be flexible in terms of providing support lanes or different, you know, working hours or whatever it is to help make sure that they can be um, working at their best and their best might not be their best from the previous year. It might be the best of what they can do in that current moment and situation. Um, and you have to be able to adjust and account for that um, without saying, we're just going to get someone else. Right. Because ultimately, I've always thought like your people are the best thing you have and like your talent is what makes or breaks the, the company you're in. Um, so I think, again, the balancing the personal and the business um, is a key one. I've always really thought that hmm. the hardest thing with the pandemic was that, especially in a space of um, advertising design, creative type of agencies, you know, when the money goes down and we're seeing this again in this economy, um, we're one of the first things they cut mostly because a lot of clients don't always necessarily still understand the value of it, or they have other critical things that they're now diminishing budget needs to support. And this is seen as something that can be reduced. Right. And so overnight, it felt like during the pandemic, we had, I think more than half of our people on the quote unquote bench are not on a project because contracts just dried up um, immediately or canceled and things like that. And so I formed this for us at the time, a completely new way of how we were handling folks on the bench where we stood up kind of shadow projects. So like simulated client projects um, with full like cross functionality and they had 
like everything even down to the minutia of user stories, but they were going full end to end of a project. And this was in a space when I was working in um, digital product development. So um, we were looking at like mobile apps or websites and they were going all the way from ideation and research through the design and through a prototype development phase to where it felt like they were on a project and they had consistent meetings every day. They were engaging with others. They were still learning, still using their skills. Um, and we were then hopefully getting out something tangible that we could use to pitch back to clients or um, shift their skill set in terms of learning. And we're doing the same thing inside of Design It right now, um, specifically around healthcare and also AI. We're using this bench project to test um, different AI tools that may or may not influence not the creative output itself, but our process. Like how can we get faster and more efficient? How can we um, remove redlining and things like that, right? Like use AI to really um, skirt the edges of some of the design work so that our creative output is much stronger in terms of like the concepts, the execution um, without removing the value that our designers bring to whatever they're working on, right? So, you, you know, that was another core piece of working through the pandemic of having to really flex into keeping people not worried and keeping their skill sets high and being used. Um, and I would say maybe a third thing I learned really quickly is um, recognizing actually what clients need is and, and this is something like, yes, you knew, but there was just such a deeper level of understanding, like what they need is not always what you want to provide them, right? You know, we want to innovate and push them forward, but sometimes they really just need to get the table stakes out. They need to prove upwards to their stakeholders or for the minimal budget they have and really recognizing how design fits into the equation around business value. And I know I'm probably like losing some creatives here of talking about business, right? And that's all glazing over. But I think <laughs> until we get to a space that design really helps demonstrate that we truthfully influence the business and or influence our customers in the positive way, like I think we will always be that thing that can easily be cut off. And that's the shift we're seeing in the industry right now. Um, is being able to demonstrate, you know, things like ROI and, and sentences that are not inherently um, taught, I think, within creative spaces to start, but that become the critical aspect to get the next phase of the project or demonstrate why we succeeded so much over here. Um, and the pandemic was really critical for that and understanding how are we bringing value? How do we get to keep that tiny budget that they have left and, and have it be paid for us versus another vendor, right? Exactly. Um, you know, it's so interesting. I was going to bring up AI uh, a little bit later, which I, I'll get more into. But I, now that we are on the subject, I'd like to find out. You know, do you have any um, like interesting stats or data on how much generative AI? has helped you and your team in terms of design and working with clients? I mean, in which ways do you do you use generative, generative AI um, yeah. and how does that impact or influence the designs that you do create? Yeah, you know, I think Design It very much recognizes this is the, the next phase of evolution. So many of our clients are coming to us, wanting us to help them with AI and they don't even know why they want it yet. We don't even know how they need it yet. Um, everyone is operating in a space of like 
needing to be an expert before the material is out there for anyone to be an expert in. And so we're trying to take a really measured approach in making sure that we are all really responsibly have at, at minimum baseline understanding of it. So all of Design It is actually getting trained in AI. We have two different programs we're going through, one from our parent company, Wipro. Um, we're also going to take all of the Google training, right? So we're being really methodical and that's across design, even our operational functions in the, in the background. It's not just our delivery folks. Um, and like I said, we're doing this bench project. What we're trying to do is use AI in a way that's really creative. We have this kind of massive database that because we're testing these on, um, in safer spaces, we're not testing anything in client projects yet unless the clients have agreed to it and we all understand like, what are the guardrails, what are the potential risks? Because, you know, a lot of these don't necessarily have true insight into the ethics of them yet, into the accuracy of these tools yet, depending on which ones you're talking about. Um, but there's, there's everything from little stuff such as, I, I think it's called Grammarly that like will edit and review all of your copy that when you don't have the space, time, budget to have copywriter, this allows other skilled folks to make sure that like our, our PowerPoint decks are, are top of the line and perfect in a really fast way. Um, and that's a really small one all the way into, uh, we actually heard this other agency was using, um, I believe a version of ChatGPT to, ask like create a creative brief for this problem whatever it was and then they would say okay whatever those versions of that creative brief came out to that is our baseline we have to elevate against like they are kind of using ai to set like here's the generalist perspective and so we have to do better than that if that's what the internet is spitting out from the conglomeration of like all this information right and i just that was just really clever so that's a lot of what we're trying to do as well is like how can we use it to up level our thinking um, to faster gain insights from our research um and i think when you talk about data i would say at minimum probably 20 percent or plus of our clients have come to us just within the last six months to want to talk about ai and i think there's the difference of generative AI versus AI as a whole, because that field is massive. And I, I think a lot of clients aren't really realizing that they're already using AI itself in so many ways and predictive technologies, um, but generative AI, where it is much more of an interactive space and their consumers are interacting in the process of what's going on within AI, that's not what they have um, fed into their products or tools yet, right? And that's a lot of what we're talking to them about in terms of shaping and how that can help. Um, but it is still a very, I think, protected space. We are putting together quite a lot of um, ethics and training for our own teams of like how to use this, how to be responsible. Design It has this really wonderful framework, Do No Harm, um, that is really based, it's a, it's a concept taken from the Hippocratic Oath, actually. And so every thing we step into, we really want to make sure we are doing no harm or we are improving the responsibility of what it is, sustainability, accessibility, et cetera, inclusion, um, removing manipulation, all of that. And we have so many parts and processes within this framework and training as well. Um, and so it's moments like these that that kind of foundational belief of who design it is, is really necessary when you partner it with something like AI that has the potential to be extremely helpful and potentially really detrimental, right? If you use it really irresponsibly or you move too fast. Um, and so I think 
we're trying to be experts for our clients without moving ahead of, of our like cart before the horse a bit, you know? Um, so it's just a really delicate balance. And I imagine every other agency is weighing that same kind of balance versus speed as well. Can you expand on that? Like, you know, doing better than generative AI or better than chat GPT. I mean, what are some of the things that you do to ensure that you actually do do better than a generative AI chatbot like chat GPT? Sorry about that. Yeah, this is the space where I would say testing and iterating and um, especially uh, I was mentioning that bench project, we've created a structure where um, as they are executing phases of the project, everything from personas to wireframes, um, a social media campaign with our creative folks, um, they are testing tools in the background. And we have kind of a collective team readout every other week where we're going through these tools and we're not talking about the work, we're talking about how what was the tool useful for? Like, let's do a quick demo of it. What did you create? What did you do? Um, is it valuable? And then we're actually sharing that globally. So we have an AI kind of task force or council that, again, I'm sure many um, agencies are spinning these up right now that are creating all of these guidelines, launching trainings for us, and really taking a pulse of what's going on in the industry and creating those baselines for us of here's the tools we really want to focus on. We've seen and found X, Y, and Z. Um, and like I said, that, that chat GBT baseline, like that wasn't our idea. We saw that from another agency and we adapted it. And so I think we're all kind of learning as a collective. And that's something that I've always really valued about the design community is we're really willing to share like what's going on, what we're doing, um, and we don't gatekeep quite a lot of it. And so hopefully it's going to push all of us forward because I think the design community in general is probably pretty worried that AI and generative AI specifically will take over a lot of our, our jobs or our skills. And we really will then be fighting not only against business value, but also technical skills value. Um, and so we need to get a handle on it faster so that we can create a distinct POV to our clients, to other agencies, vendors, et cetera, so that we can say, here's how we're using it and here's how we're still relevant in that moment, right? And so I think that's a lot of the kind of testing we're trying to do right now is validating that hopeful hypothesis. Hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, seeing as we are already on this topic, I, I might as well talk or elaborate a little bit more on this. Um, so let's let's actually dive more into you know general design stuff and tap into you know your experience and perspective on some of the current trends and the future states of design. Um, so Christine, talking about you know AI, you know generated stuff as well. How do you perceive, um, you know, ChatGPT's Dolly or something that they've just acquired uh, also having an influence on design? Yeah, you know, interestingly, um, inside of Wipro, there's this other phenomenal acquisition called Lab 45 um, that really sits within the, the very early stage innovation space with a lot of our clients. And they've created their own version of a chat GPT that we um, are using internally. And we're able to upload quite a lot of our files and then it will quickly rip down insights and things from that. And so... Um, I think the interesting thing there is so many people are trying to create these different tools and platforms. Uh, and again, it's all a, a speed to an ethical conscience kind of challenge that everyone is having right now um, in terms of when you look at all of these 
AI-driven tools or these um, generative AI tools, you know, the they have popped up so fast. We know that they have not all created um, a deep overview of the algorithms of where they're drawing information from. And so it's kind of putting us all in a position where we need to be much more conscious and cautious about using them. Um, but I do think it's very obvious that this is the next phase of the internet, right? Like this is going to dramatically change how we all operate in the world, how our clients um, get information, review the data, and then use it and are streamlining their processes, right? So again, it's going to be the rest of us businesses understand like how do we fit in with a lot of that reduction of force reduction of skills, talent vendors, um, and make sure that we remain relevant or providing a service that is unique and distinct to where it is still highly valued. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I, I want to take it a little bit further than that as well. Um, how do you see that actually impacting designers, though, like and the workforce yeah. for designers? I mean, do you see a future where designers would not necessarily have to go study design or something like that? Or do you think that there's definitely still going to have to be fundamental design, say, rules that people need to follow in hand in hand with creating AI generated you know, designs yeah. or content. I mean, oh man, I absolutely hope that everyone still goes to school or has some level of training for design because I think maybe like any skill set, right? The ability to do it well is based on the expertise you have to evaluate what you're doing, right? So just creating the assets, you know, you know, there's let's just use logos, right? Are all over the world. And your view sure. on design can determine whether or not you think that is good or good enough, right? And so you can quickly use an AI tool, but I would say there are probably different levels of design industries that have different standards of excellence, much like your awards, right? That help determine the, the standards of how that logo or whatever that design um, result is producing. And so when you go to think about designers, like, yes, they can use all these tools, but how effective are they going to be? How good are they able to evaluate the quality of what those tools are putting out? Right. And that's just the same as design work now. If they're hand executing it, you grow within your expertise over time through training, through mentors. Um, there's such a benefit now, right, that you can go and watch a million YouTubes for free instead of maybe always needing to just only learn from a traditional school. Um, but there is still that learning that is critical because it gives you that eye to really determine, is this worthy? Can you push it? Is it really solving the problem that you started with outside of just pure aesthetics, right? So yeah, and maybe because, I don't know, I love school and I was a professor for so long that like inherently I, I really do believe that education is key. Um, and, and a lot of education does come from using the tools. So as a designer, I would say you absolutely should be getting into these tools and not just knowing that they're over there, right? You need to see how can they break down your process? Um, how can they improve your process so that you're executing stronger um, in your own right with all the skills that you have? And 
even some of the powerhouse tools like Figma and others are creating their own AI and generative AI um, enhanced tools within their suite, right? And so it's very much like you absolutely need to understand how to then go learn those skills within the main tools you're already using and then continue to evaluate their efficacy because they're all so new. So I, I do think it is a, a bonus very much for designers, but also a massive challenge that now, like all of a sudden, we all need to kind of go back and, and relearn. Um, but in a way, you know, maybe that's like the we're starting to be shoved in the world of developers where they are constantly getting new platforms that they're like hybrid technologies that they have to go learn this new code because I've worked with so many developers for the years that I think in some ways designers have have been a little bit more blessed in kind of natural learning instead of very prescribed to a specific platform and, and AI is really pushing us into a very prescriptive type of space and yet it's also the wild west because there's hundreds of tools out there and so how do you really pick and choose what can enhance your design skills. But yeah, I, I think it'll be critical for designers to really sink into this and make sure they're using the tools responsibly and not just using them because they are easy, right? Um, and I think that's kind of probably one of the bigger worries that we have within Design It is that we wanna make sure we do this right. Um, and we also don't do harm for our clients and, and their users unintentionally. Um, so we're trying to be as diligent as possible. Yeah, exactly. No, that makes 100% sense. Uh, of course, you would want to make sure that you use it as a tool um, to help maybe, I'd say, streamline what you're doing as opposed to using it to carry everything of the project that you're working on, right? Um, but seeing as we are on the topic of, you know, trains in design right now, um, how do you perceive the influence of current trends? You know, things like motion graphics or 3D animated art, um, you know, or even virtual reality that's shaping, you know, the future of web and graphic design. I mean, do you think that these types of trends, which also include AI, um, might be fleeting or do you think they represent a much more fundamental shift in how we approach design and aesthetics? I don't think they're a trend. I absolutely think the world of design is just getting bigger in that, you know, when I talk about myself personally falling into the world of design, it was right around the time when apps were coming on the scene. I came out of grad school when it was kind of everyone learning the phrase human-centered design and big companies needing to fully transform even their main customer-facing websites because um, it was not well-designed for lack of better phrasing there. And we went through this kind of full evolution in that time period where it caught everyone up to at least having good brand presence um, and good kind of intention in terms of design. And now we're in this next phase of evolution where I think design is starting to be recognized that it can, it's everything from physical product design to the ex customer service experience you are having with a brand, to the memorable moments, to the social media tone. Um, you know, it's kind of all encompassing in a way. Um, and I think what it's starting to do is, cause you know, you say, I wanna be a designer. It's like, okay, well now what type? <laughs> you know, do you want to be a game designer? Do you want to design for Oculus? Do you want to um, go design billboards still, right? Like it, it is 
a massive, massive world in terms of what one word can really mean. Um, and so I think it's only broadening because companies are really understanding that to, I kind of always call it the Netflix problem. Like there's too many options out there. And so if you're trying to be the movie that like stands out in the sea of everything else, you really have to look at all of the touch points with a consumer. And that is tough for companies to do. We saw that through um, COVID and everyone needing to do like a digital resurgence and that um, progressing your entire business forward um, to satisfy in all of those ways a good customer experience because customers' expectations are high now, right? We Everyone always expects everyone has an app and that it's easy and smooth because there's so many that they use that are. And that puts a huge pressure, I think, on a lot of other companies to get up to that same um, quality standard or even baseline, again, if we use that, right? So um, I, I'm wondering a bit here, but I, I think my summary is that I, I don't think these are trends. I just think the, the scope in the world of design and kind of um, customer interaction with a brand is just broadening. And that does create more opportunities for all of us to play in these spaces to work in an omni-channel view. You know, design is working on some really fascinating projects right now that are um, working on so many areas of just one business alone. And, and that's the type of work that's really fascinating, that like full complexity. Um, and so I, I think it's recognizing how, I don't know if the world is shifting of more so companies are recognizing that they might not call it design, but good design is really inherent in every facet of the business or needs to be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. So, okay, look, seeing as we're also, again, on the subject of, you know, client relationships and, and speaking of design, um, there's one question I, I was really keen to ask you as well. I mean, navigating client relationships, especially in something like design, um, is quite tough. I think it's quite a complex um, balance that you need to strike, you know, especially when you're introducing innovative trends or exploring new creative avenues, you know, like we've just spoke about. So in your experience, how do you manage um, clients who may not like fully grasp the advantages of modern design approaches or, you know, say those who are hesitant about embracing technological advancements, you know, um, or even to take it a step further? I mean, how do you strike that balance again between, you know, meeting the client demands, but also retaining your creative freedom and like forward vision, uh, forward thinking vision? Um, for the project, for the specific clients without jeopardizing that client satisfaction? Yeah, that's probably always the toughest piece, right? Um, No longer, I think, are we back in the world of Mad Men where you're in this black box and you're creating this magic and you demonstrate it to the clients, right? Um, What works extremely well now um, and something design is phenomenal at is like a very immersed client relationship in that they are along the ride for every step of the way. They're not just in the initial workshops, but they, we are going through the user journeys, the touch points, we're going through the research, they're coming on site to see the research, to do the insight digests with us, um, to do the various studies, to review the prototypes, to test out the prototypes, be there or watch recordings. You know, every moment that a, des- a 
client can be involved, we try to yank them in. And what that does is it starts to demonstrate why we are making these decisions and also allow them a moment to help make the decision or put in additional context that we won't have, right? You know, an agency style world, you're working with so many companies that we are not the experts. We are very cognizant that our clients are the experts and we need to have them a like core part of the project or we will miss, potentially miss, um, some of the context, the insights, the history of the business, like what works well, what doesn't, what they've tried, all of those things, right? So a very, very collaborative space. And, and you know, maybe that's like such an easy answer is like collaborating with your clients. But I, I think in practice, it's actually very difficult to do um, because you are pulling them in every situation that you are in some ways for certain clients teaching them the process as well. And so for them to then evaluate the outcomes while they are also learning is kind of a big ask. So you have to be really conscious of making sure you're pulling them in for the right moments and making sure they understand how to engage when you pull them in, right? You know, I've walked through some, what's a simple one, like a day in the life, which is uh, such an easy and a helpful um, kind of like exercise to go through sometimes with clients, but if they don't really understand like, why are we doing this? It is hard for them to participate. And it can be like pulling teeth sometimes when it's like, that's the critical information we need to then identify like where those service design touch points that we can influence the brand or where are they experiencing friction? But if they don't really understand the value of the end result, sometimes it can be hard for them to engage and participate. So um, I've kind of always, took a little bit of like a learning and teaching to fish type of mentality when it comes to clients of if they're there along for the ride, the end result will inevitably be better, like hands down versus us just doing it ourselves. Um, but you will also get a lot more buy-in, a lot more trust, and hopefully then you can do additional work because you're going to cover a wealth of things that are never going to be within the first phase or the budget or whatever it is, timeline. Um, and as designers, we inherently want to fix all the things. <laughs> so we want to build this trust so that we can continue to do more projects um, and continue to solve the other problems that we uncovered or get to MVP two of whatever we launched in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. Again, and we've, we've delved into this a little bit earlier as well. We, we touched on some logos and stuff. Now, say, for instance, in the realm of design, you know, or product packaging, you know, what um, holds like the most significant influence, would you say, in brand identity and consumer perception? I mean, reflecting on, say, for instance, the history of design, um, if you had the opportunity to, you know, reimagine or redesign any like famous logo, um, which one would you select and why? And how would your redesign approach enhance or transform the original design's impact on today's context? Yeah, and, and quickly I'll answer. I think people now are identifying with brands that have fulfilled on their promise. No longer is it just like we see the brand and that looks amazing, and so we're going to go after it. There's 800 million touch points now, everything from reviews to what have social, et cetera, where we're going to go to that thing if we truthfully believe it will help 
solve or fulfill or provide us with whatever product service we want. Um, and so when you go to a logo, <laughs> redesigning, I only laugh because my, I have some amazing women that I ride with that also work at ad agencies um, and have worked on this brand because we've talked about it at nauseum that I would love to be able, and I, I've pitched for it a couple times, almost got to work on it. Harley Davidson is one that I used to have a Harley. I'm not really a Harley girl anymore. Um, but that logo, I just cannot with the orange and the black, <laughs> you know, it's just not for me. And it's something that I think doesn't actually do justice to the vintage nature of how that logo has transformed. It had such like a massive cutoff when they started with the orange and the black and the Eagle and all that thing. So, um, I would really love to erase all of that history, not just redesign it because I don't think anyone will ever let go of their black and orange leather jacket at this point. Um, but I think it just has such a, a deeper, better promise if you modernize some of the vintage touches. And honestly, if I really could in an instant, I would love to revert back the Johnson & Johnson logo that just got changed right now. I think that's a big misstep in trying to modernize it to a degree where it has no personality. And that's, I know, a big conversation in the design world right now of all of these brands kind of reducing their own individualism um, by kind of going with the norm and being a lot more simple. But yeah. Okay. I mean, yes, I, I saw that as well. And I have to say, I agree with you. I prefer the older one. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way the traditional logos look. You know, I think that's yeah. a very unique point for them. I mean, it's such an old company that that's kind of what makes them stand out, right? I mean, yeah. they're so old. They've had that for so long. It's It's vintage and it's beautiful in my opinion. But okay. On the other side, though, um, if you if we're talking about truly like iconic and memorable logos, which one would you say stands out for you personally and why? Like, what did they do right? You know, I've always talked about I, I sit in an agency world because there's not a brand. I feel like I could talk about 24 seven for like if I was at that job for five years. Um, but I had the opportunity, probably I would say one of my first big breaks as like a sole or lead designer. Um, and it was, a, it's a distinguishing moment for me because I think it was the first time my parents who are military and medical. So I am widely off base in terms of what they thought of as like a stable career. Right. Um, they understood what I do and it was working for Baskin Robbins, um, maybe not like the most iconic out there, but I think, you know, I grew up with that pink spoon and to go in and pull it into the digital world and design and launch their first app and even work on a cake configuration app experience um, was such a memorable moment for me. And it was taking all of the decisions, the information, the fun of that brand and infusing it into a digital experience and kind of a, a quick, customer execution because you'd be like, why does Basker Robbins need an app? Essentially, like it's it's not just for coupons, hopefully. Um, and so it's, it's moments like that for me that have been really enlightening. You know, there's an insurance company that my parents have had forever that in a way I'm quite ambivalent about insurance companies. And then I go and work on that. And it's still one of the most defining projects I've had that is unexpected, gas stations also one of the top projects for me and 
So when I go back to iconic brands, um, both in my personal life and professional, I think it's ones that are unexpected have, have actually been the most defining for me. And that's maybe somewhere rooted in there is like the whole moving around a lot and always having changes, my catalyst, you know, um, the unexpected, um, but yeah, household brands, I think that's changing a lot too, in terms of like the ones we've always leaned on are now shifting into, but which ones are actually, like I said, paying off on their value. Um, and I've seen myself personally shift as well in terms of who I'm gravitating to based on where I am in my life stage, right? If, again, if I think of all the household brands that I've had those logos in my house with different like Tide Pods and whatever growing up um, and always trusted that now everything in my house is non-toxic, clean products as much as possible. And so the brands I'm gravitating to now have a much different requirement and definition um, comparative to just legacy and comfort of knowing them using them, right? It's much more intentional and purpose-driven. Exactly. I mean, I think you're right in saying, you mentioned this a little bit earlier or touched upon it where you were saying, you know, these days people or consumers rather don't really care too much about what the logo looks like and they care more about what the business is actually doing or these companies are doing. Are yeah. they actually ethical? Are they giving you good products? Are they providing good services? You know, that's, that's more what people care about these days. So in that sense, and as a designer that works, you know, in branding and designing different things and, and all that stuff, how would you say the best way is for brands to translate that into their branding? The fact that they are eth ethical and all of that. I mean, I, I'm sure the colors and type fonts and everything play a part, but is it bigger than that? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I, I think it actually goes back to where are they showing up as well. So again, if we go back to like awards like Design Rushes, when I think about um, brands, it's not necessarily just their logo or the the subcopy and things like that. It's also what awards are they trying to get? What um, accreditations are they trying to go for? Are they trying to get lead certified if that's something that's applicable to their business, right? Are they really trying to not only like kind of say we're going to start using recycled products, but actually going and completely changing the infrastructure of their business to do so, right? So I think consumers, because we have the ability to, by having an entire computer in our hand, we have the ability to in 10 seconds go find out if what they're saying is actually true and like really deep dive into a lot of companies to see how far this sense of ethical is, right? Are they just doing rainbow washing? Are they actually providing um, benefits to LGBTQ employees that are, that are meaningful and contributing to their lives, right? Like making sure they're not just doing things for publicity. And we have the ability to find all that out now, which we didn't used to before, right? So, um, like I said, I fully see the challenge companies have, right? Because you're built up on 
say maybe a couple products or a couple services. And then now the amount of things you're accountable to is quite large because the access to information um, is so readily available. And so a lot of companies, I think, are struggling under the weight of having to be perfect in all these spaces and all the things for all the people. Um, and there are many ways where they need to and, and they have a responsibility to actually do better and be better. But I think there's also just the responsible limit of what businesses can do and sustain. And even if they want to completely shift all of their infrastructure and legacy stuff, and this is a, these are a lot of the projects we like to work on, right? We're working in a lot of spaces where these companies have built out such a massive infrastructure, um, such a legacy space like transportation that they know they need to push forward, but it is just kind of an insurmountable task to do so while also still making revenue so that their business doesn't go under. Um, you look at department stores and so forth, they have tried so many different ways to shift and change. Some of them have made it and some of them haven't, right? And so when you think about um, how designers can play a part in this. I think it's recognizing that it's not just creating snappy ideas or, or really beautiful aesthetics. It's you have to make sure that it not only pays off in the business, but that it fulfills a customer need so that that business can continue to thrive. And so you can continue to improve it in the way that it needs to. It can't just kind of completely dial shift overnight. Yeah, exactly. You have to actually put the hard work in, right? Yeah. So can we, once again, just have you start by giving us like an overview of design it's and, you know, its core mission and philosophy and the things that drive the company? Absolutely. Um, so design it has a really storied history. It was one of the things that attracted me to it. It's been around for many decades, primarily first started within Europe and has grown to a global footprint. Um, I work for the Americas um, and it is a global experience innovation company. And so obviously it has design in the title and, and that is very core to uh, how we are brought up. Our mindset is whatever the role we think um, within a phrase of design and designers, but really we are able to work on the full spectrum of design. So everything from the innovation and research and strategy all the way through to digital product delivery or marketing campaigns. Um, I mentioned service design, right? So I, I'm not even touching on, on all of our capabilities, but I think where our philosophy stands is that we our work is based around human-centered design principles um, and that's rooted in do no harm which i mentioned previously right um but we are trying to make sure that all the work we're doing really creates a meaningful impact in the world and that we're bringing all of our skills together to do so um, and we are fully willing to staff globally based on having strong skills or expertise in certain areas. Um, it's one of the most fascinating companies I've worked for in that, you know, I, I don't believe I've ever worked with a doctor within a design agency. And so that's really um, fascinating. You know, we're coming from all different backgrounds and it's a highly diverse company in that. Um, and that global footprint adds to that. Um, but we're all still very connected. You know, I, I've worked in other global agencies, but they were very siloed in by location. Um, and maybe it's because we are fully remote, but we are not. Um, we're constantly talking. Um, actually, I helped to start a global 
creative council for us that now has communities of practice and the full intention of them is to the councils to elevate our creative excellence and our standards and then the communities of practice are made up of all the practitioners for um, each discipline and we also have some of that are cross-discipline such as inclusive design um, research and strategy or research and insights and so that is to connect designers globally and so that we can continue to share processes and tools practices elevate all of our work um, learn from each other see some really amazing work that's going on in a different location that we're not part of right so um, it's a it's a really awesome size in that it's about 800 people and so it has the ability to flex up and scale with the power of Wipro behind it um, for any large project we're working on uh, which we have quite a few complex ones going on at the moment um, and we have the ability to then be really boutique and really focus on that core kind of high quality design output um, because we can be that nimble in that mid-size. And that was another thing that attracted to me actually through my first conversation ever with our CEO, Nick, um, in our interviews, we talked quite a lot about where we sit within the world of agencies because we're playing against the biggest ones out there and really small boutique shops. And that's just because the industry has shifted so much that it's really about quality and innovation and ability to deliver. Um, and so, you're going to compete against everyone instead of competing against kind of your the traditional partners that you would have maybe 10 20 years ago exactly um i just want to touch upon something again uh that you just mentioned as well first of all when you say human-centric design right what is it that falls under that and how do you maintain that sorry to bring this up again in a world that is obviously going to be awash with ai because it already is so how yeah. would you keep human-centric design in your designer branding um in a in a world that's starting to shape into a much more artificial you know landscape yeah i think you know Human-centered design and, and any phrase similar to that, I think, has taken the brunt of being an overused phrase, unfortunately. Um, but really, when you think about it as your profession, it is, it hopefully, is the basis of how you measure the influence you're putting out in the world, your impact. Um, and so we have tried to create a couple different systems so that we are recognizing and making sure that the impact we are delivering is doing no harm. Um, and that's the basis of that framework. And it's making sure that we are fulfilling the, well, if I step back, it's first making sure that we are drawing from insights of who is actually going to use whatever the thing is and making sure that it is first rooted in a true need and true problem for our users and then making sure that we try and innovate in that space but not pushing it so far that it is then unuseful and creative for the sake of being creative right so for us human-centered design i think the challenge is very much like you said not only balancing ai but balancing 
the rapid shift of technology in general, right? Um, what was best practices last year in terms of a digital space and how you even use, let's say, search functionality is completely different this year. E-commerce has kind of been infused inside of every single business, right? And so when you think about um, what is going on, it is making sure that you actually truly keep a pulse on society and where humans are and then infuse that into the work. Um, it's kind of this constant iteration of making sure that you are hyper aware of what's going on, not only within our own industry. I think um, the most successful design firms actually look outside of the world of design to get a lot of the insights of how to move things forward. Um, because whether that is how um, society is changing, how education is changing, like whatever it is that you are drawing from for whatever specific client problem, you need to sink yourself into the true human needs of it and infuse that into the work. Um, I'm hoping actually, even with the shift in technology that that doesn't change because ultimately like humans are still using the things. And so there is an element of where we need to be mindful of like how to teach humans to walk around in these spaces now to be really efficient. And at the same time, we have to teach clients as well of that they don't always need to show up in every single space. You know, you don't need to be ever present. You just need to be present when you are most impactful and most usable. And, and that's kind of the balance there in terms of human centered design. Um, I also taught um, at Tufts within um, the engineering department um, and it was human factors engineering. And so we we're my partner and I from my last company, um, both of us are design leaders and it was very fun to be able to teach in a partnered sense, but we were teaching individuals who will, 99% of them are not going to go into a design field. And so they really know nothing about design. Um, but what they are learning about quite often is like operating in a physical space, improving physical things, right? The human factors and engineering aspects of their lives, um, you know, even digital interfaces on medical devices, things like that. Like, yes, there are elements of design, but it's so much more about kind of the function of it. And that was extremely rewarding in terms of helping them understand not only the process of design, but how so much of how you interact with the world really can be improved with a design lens on it. And I think that's very similar to how design it wants to operate, right? Is how do we blend the physical, the digital, the tech, the digital, or sorry, the tech and design, um, and make sure that we are really infusing that human aspect while being cognizant of whatever is changing, such as AI, et cetera. Okay. Um, so just, we're going to start wrapping up pretty soon as well, uh, Christine, because I know we've, we've covered quite a lot already. Um, so just shifting gears a little bit, uh, and it's something that you've touched on as well, you know, with the, our design rush based design awards, um, you know, for just those that aren't familiar, uh, Design Rush is, of course, a B2B marketplace uh, that connects brands with agencies. Now, we or they recognize um, outs uh, like outstanding achievements in various design categories. This includes things from best design or um, from uh, website to app design to packaging and video design. So, Christine, I just want to, you know, get some of your expertise on this as well. Um, you know, Design Rush's Best Design Awards um, have become quite a benchmark for excellence in our industry. So in your view, what would you say is the significance of these awards 
in shaping industry standards um, and recognizing design talent, particularly for design agencies. Yeah, I mean, I tend to feel that awards um, in general help solidify not only what is working well and innovative, but is actually, again, creating that impact. Um, and so when we talk about Design Rush within Designa, it's more so about how are we making sure that we're not just measuring against ourselves or measuring against um, our peers, but that we're also measuring in a much more, I think, global and diverse space. You know, you all get a lot of different participants and different companies that operate in spaces quite separate from Design It. And so that helps us really balance, are we um, achieving not only our own standards, but also pushing forward within a wider industry at large. Um, and so I, I think it gives a really good demonstration and example of how things are shifting, but also shifting with intention. Um, and, and I think it would be really interesting too, to see an element of having more, I think you brought it up earlier, like what are some of the data and the analytics around the value of some of these ideas and some of these submissions, right? Um, like I said, designers are probably gonna glaze over, but I think there's such a positive shift in understanding how are we impacting the business and our clients and having that part of the story is how we get the next set of clients. Um, and so it's like, I wanna see the work, but I also wanna see like, did the work help? You know, and, and there's that aspect of how you all do the awards that has been really enlightening as well and um, why folks participate. Okay. And when you say measure your success in design, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I think folks naturally think about design as aesthetics or maybe even design thinking as that has been... Um, a much broader kind of topic that has been learned over the last few years. But I think measuring it is making sure, like I just mentioned, that we actually put in analytics to understand which pieces or what functionality did we design, turn on, execute, etc., that actually moved revenue forward, moved consumer trust forward, whatever kind of the KPIs are. You know, we recently did work for a financial company um, and we were able to actually measure that what we designed, how well it actually moved forward um, the, the consumers, not only engaging with the platform, but actually transitioning into customers of the platform and we were then able to make adjustments and that's like the the best thing you want to do as a designer is not only just like put the work out there but you want to know like how well did it work and then let's iterate on it and improve it and change it and i think that's what we try to measure is following the project along and making sure that it really hit the goals that we started with and if it didn't how do we then strategically improve those areas that we need to um and we're trying to, I think, continually get into a space where we have more measurability for design. I think in some areas it can be particularly very subjective. And that's been what's always been kind of fluid with this industry and, and something that if we want to stay around, especially within the space of AI, we need to crisp up a bit more. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And okay, in saying again, you know, measuring the success of a design and all that, what would you say are the most important indicators to look for in like a really, really successful design? I think the first one everyone will say is memorable. And I would agree with that because I think, again, you, in the sea of a million things out there, you need to be distinguishable. Um, so memorability is a huge one. Um, I think however you can measure if you did execute or solve the problem um, or complete the task, right? Like that's a simple version if we want to talk in product management terms um, that the users are going after. So task completion, et cetera. Um, speed is another one. Um, and again, like quality is such a huge one, but that is such a subjective one. Like that's the one that is hard to measure and that's where um, awards and things like that are helpful with that. But typically, you know, we're almost always, our measurements are from our clients. And I think that's where we make sure we try and look outside of just, are we successful from our client's view because their um, version or expectations are not always based around the same principles of design or understanding of design, um, not for lack of ability for it, but just because they, their KPIs are based on their business needs, their stakeholders needs, et cetera, right? So um, when we're constantly measuring ourselves against our clients, we also need to make sure we have a set that we are upholding ourselves to as well in partnership with that. Because if, if we all just did exactly what the clients want, I don't think we'd be doing the best design work out there all the time. Sometimes, yes, very much so. Um, but we have to put our own quality standards on top of that. And that's where we get into a space where um, hopefully, whether you win an award or not, but it is worthy of having some type of distinction attached to it, right? Exactly. I think that's how you start to solidify your own space as a designer is when yeah. you actually, again, you know, know how to balance that, you know, what your creativity is, because of course they're hiring you for a reason, right? Yeah. So um, I think it's it's very important to, to keep those things in mind. Um, Christine, we have covered a lot and I am so thankful that you have stuck through this with us as well and, and provided such valuable insights. Now, I only have one last question for you before we start or before we finish up for today. Um, so reflecting on your journey, if you could give uh, one piece of advice to say your 16 year old self, you know, that time just before stepping into adulthood, um, what would it be? I think for me, it's making sure that I I find comfort and being adaptable and being nimble. It is something that I have recognized much later as one of the strongest things about myself, but was the hardest thing to develop because you're constantly, if you want to talk about measuring, right? You're measuring yourself against others or you have to keep the blinders on a little bit. That's something I said a lot in grad school when everyone was applying to all of these big name agencies, right? And I had to really stay focused on what did I want? What did I want to go after? And making sure that you have a core sense of self. Um, I, I wish my younger me was much stronger in that instead of waiting until I was older and more confident to really step back and say, here's my focus, my value, 
um, that took a long time to develop and I don't know, maybe going through adolescence, you, you can't ever really have such a strong sense of self in that way, but I would want that to be kept on our radar for sure. I love that. I really do. Um, Christine, thank you again so much for joining us today. Really, thank you. It was uh, was a wonderful no, chat. I really, so I really enjoyed it. it. Yeah. This was really fun and happy to have another one. Um, all the best. And as we bring our conversation to a close, I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Christine Piazzo for joining us today on the Design Rush podcast. If your project could benefit from a top-tier digital agency's expertise, look no further. Head to designrush.com slash marketplace. Our carefully curated selection of agencies is equipped to help you navigate the evolving digital landscape and bring your vision to life. For more insightful conversations with industry leaders, stay tuned to the Design Rush podcast. Don't forget to like this video and subscribe to our podcast for updates on new episodes. Again, I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Stay curious and join us for the next episode.